0: The title of this evening's talk is Transformation and Relinquishment of Afflictive States of Mind. And beginning with a quote, it's from the Zen Buddhist tradition, I don't know who said it. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended (coughs) a meeting of Dharma teachers that included uh, (coughs) teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of our guests of honor at this meeting said that often his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization, liberation as the complete Purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization of Nibbana, being complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind and heart of an Arahant. In hearing His Holiness, the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very uh, deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've practiced with Sayadaw Upandita and with Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways, over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, uh, the Buddha often also speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom. He speaks of it in the same way or similar way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get at least some sense That this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so here we are making physical and mental efforts in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our uh, life outside of retreat, we come to know, to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that, at least to some degree, We've let go of what is unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. We begin to find that the wholesome states of mind and heart are more and more our experience. They're more and more readily available manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows. Along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, Abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging or condemning them. And the heart, mind of a Buddha, in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering, rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there certainly have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and practices. And when I've been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful that this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with uh, Pawak Sayadaw, I went in and I said, this is too hard, it's just too hard. And Pawak Sayadaw looked at me with uh, much softness and kindness in his eyes and and with a light laughter he simply said, no it isn't. (laughs) (coughs) And it's true, actually. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are filled with this approach to practice. (laughs) This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha was not excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, His search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new, anger, fear, resistance, judgments, Doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, etc. It's a long list. From our present life's experiences and carried on for many, many lifetimes' experiences. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some we've ignored or maybe hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the skeletons in the closet. And very important, it's not about dredging up. It's not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find Mm -hmm. a true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or judged maybe as unacceptable and buried away the skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often unconsciously and unwittingly maybe for a very long time The poet and translator Stephen Mitchell (coughs) wrote a version of the myth of Sisyphus that I'd like to share with you And these are Stephen Mitchell's words. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of concentration, mindfulness, investigation, metta, compassion. Each of which helps us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience. Enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that. Well, that oh, I see. Okay, is to realize that <laughs> fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment. Sadness. You could just turn it down a little bit, or, there. That no. This has happened before. Probably the batteries need changing. Why oh, not? All right. Let's see. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Let's start again. <laughs> With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. And we begin to realize that the reactive, habitual need to analyze it over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it or fix it, or trying to maybe ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing, really nothing kind of attitude we begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual patterns really serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or seeing through is opened. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past twenty or thirty years ago or maybe just a few moments ago continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this Rain sodden's what is kept wrapped up but never sodden's what is open. Uncover then what is concealed lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And from the Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratana from his book Mindfulness in Plain English, view all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great. (laughs) More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be acknowledged, accepted, and clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be a vicious circle. And so we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher, Nasargadatta Maharaj, says, said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them, observe, inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look uh, now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions, the suffering that's inherent In ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, doubt, strong desires and attachments, etc. And yet so often we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things To be as though quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the imaginary future, solidifying both in our mind and yet Life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Here in Taos, During the midsummer and early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. In this big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together, just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right, And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time, looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body, heart and mind, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally Relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so obvious with rainbows. But not so much for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticking, sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body. Our rainbow mind. Including emotional states which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, and I will inevitably bring suffering, the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it might be, pleasant or unpleasant, physical or mental experience, the degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment, this present moment, and this present moment, just as it is right now, and right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different, that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. We have this saying in English, as I'm sure you've all heard, ignorance is bliss. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. (laughs) With, in fact, ignorance providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing there's an absence of right or true understanding that's experienced as the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion which is caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately Ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, conditioned states of suffering. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So going on now with uh, exploring a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states. And we'll begin with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting fear often appears in the guise of of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling I can't be with or I'm not sure that I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar, new experience, or this old familiar experience, or this strong emotional state, or pain in the body, or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe feeling frozen, or caught, or just simply unable to open to and receive the experience fully and deeply with mindful presence from this perspective fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up if we believe it it's his fault it's because she it's because they it's because this place It's because of this weather that, etc., etc., etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, feelings of unworthiness, of not being good enough, or just not being enough. Maybe not doing it right, not being able to do it right our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach to perfection, which is probably different from how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this is from the Daoist, great Taoist teacher Chang Tzu. This is uh, what he offers as a definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect person is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man, the perfect person, can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, the mind of doubt or blaming or criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and found that it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers, when I came in for a practice interview and fearfully reported the experience of fear, his response to me was, well, fear is just fear. (laughs) Well, when I first heard this from him, my inward response, I did not say it to him, (laughs) was, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say. So, obviously, on my part, some degree of resistance and a fair amount of irritation in this thought but eventually I mean I never forgot it obviously here it is many years later again but eventually I began to see yes fear is just fear. Not that it might not be intense but it's just fear. (laughs) As we gently open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness-based practice and concentration rooted in metta, rooted in kindness towards ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, come close to it, look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz said, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. (laughs) As our mind and heart get stronger and our concentration, mindfulness and meta muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is. And know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine. It's not me. It's not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens, yes, fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience, but when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me or mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We can learn to be steadfast. We can learn to stand in the fear, learn to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly. See through it, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A couple of years ago I read a story in National Geographic magazine <coughs> about a woman named Garland. She, uh, is the f- she was 40 years old, she's probably about 42 or 3 right now, uh, and she was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. And this is from the article. And it's about fear. <coughs> Her husband, Ralph, who was also a mountain climber. He said that, Ralph said that he relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And Garland, in relationship to fear, Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, She didn't feel afraid. Gerland reached the top of K2 along with two other uh, people. Her husband actually turned back at some point. And when she got to the top, she took a Buddha out of her backpack and placed it on the top of K2. She was and is a, a practicing Buddhist. The Buddha's teachings (coughs) offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. Why? Because they just reappear. And putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities, keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course it's not at all about blindly acting out and blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And something important to remember which I've mentioned already in a certain way, something important to remember is that our practice is not about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come close, very close to our immediate experience, an intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or without pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. For those of you who are specifically practicing samatha concentration and metta, these same principles apply, though investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be with a mindfulness-based vipassana practice, unless an unwholesome state really blows up into becoming very pervasive and very sticky. So, now taking a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from this perspective, it can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger and in fact spoke about really liking her anger. She said she felt quite strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately she wasn't happy. She wasn't a happy person. She was like a porcupine. People would begin to uh, get close to her and feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger and move away. She was actually quite a lonely person. And yet so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose what she felt was the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and metra energy directed Towards ourself to open to, be with, and clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger or fear or jealousy or irritation. Practice changes our mind and is about making the choice to transform our heart, transform our mind so that we embody love. And it's a courageous choice. It actually opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, and to not pretend anything, but to stay still, be here, be present in relationship to what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with a very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. And the first year I taught for two months, and then the following year for one month. One student who stayed for the whole two months of practice the first year was a man in his early 40s a very successful big city businessman from Warsaw who had quite diligently practiced Zen, uh, karate and and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana Meta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered angry father and uncle living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear through much of his, throughout much of his childhood, with this fear still present in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habits of thoughts, words, and actions of that same ill-temper. He described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and uncle, he had begun to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practices and his interest in Buddhism and meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Prajeka Poland, this man diligently, mindfully practiced metta with just one phrase. Through that whole year, may I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. As the year progressed, he recognized his habituated ill-temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner in its process. Consequently, he was able to let it go more and more often. He returned to Prajeka for a month of retreat the following year, a much changed and much happier man. What's so often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels restless and driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large, and so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line's drawn that isn't to be passed with each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, and hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind, and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So, how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations, with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness or doubt or greed or clinging or expectation or disappointment, it's very helpful to try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger, they're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body. Feeling the emotion directly and in itself, without the story. What are you feeling? Well, maybe heat, tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction. Give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness, grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring attention directly into the body and the breath with walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside. The trees in conjunction with the wide-open spaciousness of the sky, the smells, the sun and air, touching the skin. Take an interest. Notice the birds, chipmunks, maybe insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention. Afflictive emotion disappears. It is in present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Really beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remember the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. And again from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who, as I've mentioned, previously often taught in dialogue with his students. A student asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? And the Sagadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It is the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states actually doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy in clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or control or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition with a clear non-self-absorbed mindful attention based in the heart of kindness therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now we'll spend just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. When our heart, our mind, is clouded, we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment. We're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get or how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, in order for us to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that a satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And, of course, there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, it's part of what got you here onto retreat. (laughs) In light of our exploration this morning, I'd like to share a prayer, a personal practice, that I was told was uh, one of Mother Teresa's practices and it was uh, actually sent to me uh, in the mail by somebody and this is it <clears throat> deliver. she said uh, in her practice it's Deliver Me oh Jesus I changed it to Deliver Me O oh Dhamma <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Deliver me, O Dama, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. Covers it all, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Just a very short while after I uh, read this uh, practice, this prayer, I got a phone call from a friend and I said, Oh, I, I have to read you this. I just got this in the mail. So I read it to him over the phone, and his response was, Oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) (laughs) True, enough. Yes. We have a lot to do, but... (laughs) Every time I read this, I I find it really uh, quite inspiring. Most of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire. And also expend, uh, we may expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we can spend enormous uh, amounts of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. And maybe even here in retreat, maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had maybe a couple of days ago or maybe a particularly more wonderful sitting that you had last time you were in retreat. <laughs> it's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the, and the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while. How driven am I by my desires? So a very simple, quite mundane personal experience. Some years ago when I was in retreat, Uh, at a retreat center, it wasn't in, I was teaching, but at a retreat center in New Mexico that has some of the most beautiful uh, flower gardens, uh, I was walking along next to one of these gardens and I noticed a really wonderfully sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from. It was to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go do something else. But all I wanted to do was stay there and continue experiencing that wonderfully sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. I was experiencing feeling tightness in the body and a degree of burning irritation in the heart and the mind. I got up and I walked away to do what needed to be done next. But there was still a clinging to the sweet smell, even though it was completely gone at that point from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it, wanting it back. In fact, planning when I could go back to that garden, <laughs> imagining how nice it would be when I finally got back there. What just a moment before was a moment of pleasantness, very, very much pleasantness. There was, it was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happened so quickly. to sustain and deepen in and with our practice. Two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear seeing are, clear seeing and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Takar, who <coughs> was one of Krishnamurti's closest students, and who was a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. This is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it without taking pride in it and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. As we begin to sense, see, and know, greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. For many people, I think there's often some confusion, some delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love, until we begin to see and know it really clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he goes on through each of the six sense doors this way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago, I found a recipe, uh, and at risk of giving you a recipe that you already have, and some of you already have heard from me, uh, and maybe you cook it up occasionally, I'd like to share this recipe with you. (coughs) The ingredients. One cup of what is one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, a quarter of a pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. (laughs) One bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. So here's what you do with with it all. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. (laughs) Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. (laughs) In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. (laughs) Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. (laughs) Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately." (laughs) And this recipe comes from a man named Fred Moramarco. And a similar teaching Much shorter and with a different kind of quality to it, from the Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. So the Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness and investigation rooted in kindness. That in fact meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them and see their nature, just like we see through the hues of a rainbow. One way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Mahayana Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, the white lotuses, do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions." For me, uh, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not like something's as though something's gone wrong. So, not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potion are a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out. Strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So for just a moment now looking at just a couple of few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom, the heart, the mind reflecting clearly It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting strong desire without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear or judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go, relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind. The place of freedom from the burning. The end of suffering. And then What is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. As our practice begins to take deeper root and blossom, we really, truly begin to know that this moment is enough, just as it is. And we begin to know that our own experience, we begin to know through our own experience, that the liberation that is immediately available in any moment, liberation through non-clinging, Closing the talk <coughs> with a poem called "Hokusai Says" by Roger Keys. Hokusai was a, a quite a, is quite a well-known Japanese painter. I don't think he's, he's not alive anymore. But his most famous painting is that of a huge wave uh, starting to lap over, and the tips of the wave look like Fingers reaching down, and inside, underneath this wave, is a small boat filled with people. And this is the poem. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to learn to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength are life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.